A reading of Scripture this afternoon is from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans, Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 44, I'll read the entire chapter, Psalm 44. This psalm is from a time of the monarchy, a time of great national distress, and discipline. Hear now the word of God. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword nor did their own arms save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies." and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Selah. But you have cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, 
But we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Let us pray that the Lord would teach our hearts through his word. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have given us your word with its comforts, its warnings, encouragements, and blessings. We recognize that everything that has been written in Scripture is for us, that we might learn from its teaching and example. Even things that you caused to take place and you caused to be written of thousands of years ago, you did so for your people and for our blessing. We pray that you would bless us through the reading and preaching of your word, that you would apply it to our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom you have given us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Sometimes as we look around us, we think, where is God now? What is he doing these days? We look, we read in scripture of the things that he's done of old, the things that we've read and heard, and we say, if only we had been there with Noah God saved his people on the ark, brought them through the flood. If only we'd been there with Moses, we could have seen God working redemption by the hand of of his servants, leading them out of Egypt. If only we'd been there with Joshua, seeing the Lord conquering, driving out the Canaanites and settling his people in the land. Then we would see God at work. Then we would know. And yet, we recognize that Even now, God is still at work as he was then. God has not hidden his face. He's not left us to our own devices. Just as he was at work in the past for our forefathers in the faith, so he is today. Just as he was in control of all things in the days of Old Testament narrative and in the days of the psalmist, so he is in our day as well. And the psalmist reflects on this. He begins by looking back to the past and saying, the Lord was truly at work in the days of our fathers. Then he's going to turn and reflect on the present. So let's look first to the past in verses 1 through 3. The psalmist says, we have heard with our ears, O God, what our fathers have told us, the deeds you did in their days, in the days of old. He's saying, we have heard, we have not seen, yet we believe. And we too believe that God led his people out of Egypt. He led them into the land of Canaan. We weren't there, and yet we read it in Scripture, and we believe that it was God who did this by his own hand. And the psalmist continues, you drove out the nations with your hand, but them, that is, our fathers, you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out. 
This is to say, it wasn't the, the people of Israel themselves who made this happen. It was God who did it. With his own hand, the psalmist says. And in so doing, he's using what we call an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have hands, and yet God was in such direct control of his people, directly leading and guiding them every step of the way that psalmist can say, with your own hand, you led our fathers out of Egypt. You carried them, as it were, to the promised land. It is them, that is the fathers, you planted. And here he's um, picking up on a, on a a metaphor, as it were, that that's, uh, happens throughout Scripture. God's people as a vine. Um, Psalm 80 speaks in a very similar way. He talks about um, the Lord picking a wild vine and clearing ground for it and planting it. And this is a picture of what um, a, a horticulturist does, right? Uh, take something wild and try to propagate it and cause it to bear larger fruit. And he says, that's what God did. God selected this wild vine, he pulled it out of Egypt, and then he cleared all the weeds in the land of Canaan, got rid of the Canaanites with his own hand, and he planted this vine that it might bear fruit before him. God is the one who has done this. He planted his people in the land for a purpose, for an intention, right? He had a, he had a plan in mind. And so the psalmist says, you are the one who drove out the nations, you cleared them out, you planted our fathers there. They did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. It wasn't by their own power, by their own strength, that a group of ex-slaves traveled through the wilderness and drove out nations far more numerous and mighty than, than themselves. It was only by the hand of God himself. And not just by his own hand, but here the psalmist says, it was by the light of your countenance, or that is to say, the light of your face. Because God loves his people, because he delights in his people, he acts for them. Just as, in this case, God loved his people, and so he himself drew them out of Egypt and planted them in the land of Canaan. It was by his own will, his own decree, that he did this. Now here, the psalmist, after reflecting on what God has done in the past, he turns to the present in verse 4. He says, you are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. He's saying here, just as it was in the past, just as in the days of the Exodus and the conquest, that God was the one who led his people out of Egypt. God was the one who planted them in the land. And things haven't changed. God is still in control of the world, the psalmist says. I'm not going to trust in my bow or my sword. I have trust in the name of the Lord. People of God, we too can say the same thing. We look back to the past and we see that God was at work leading his people. And he wasn't just, you know, he didn't just uh, lead his people in the past and then go away somewhere else and forget us. He's still leading and guiding his people. He still upholds and protects us. And so with the psalmist, we can say we don't trust in bow or sword. That is to say, we don't trust in the weapons of this world, whether it's in physical weapons or whether it's in uh, 
propaganda or politics or any of anything else. We don't trust in these things. But with the psalmist, we trust in the name of the Lord. In verse 8, in God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. This teaches us that we should be mindful that we don't fall into a, a trap, what we might call it, of, of having a mechanistic view of the world or a mechanical view of the world. We don't want to say that, well, you know, why did such and such happen? Well, because some person got into his head to do something and he went out and did it and therefore it happened. In the same way, we might say, well, if we just go out and, and do thing X, it'll cause something else to happen. We may recognize that things don't happen like that because God is the one who is in control of all things. We don't think that if we, by our own power, want to do something, it'll just happen. The Lord himself is the one who causes things to happen. Just as it says in the Psalms that the heart of the king is a channel of water that God turns wherever he wants to. It's not kings who make decisions. It's not men who have the the final say in what happens in this world. It's the Lord God himself working through men even. Or consider this proverb, the die is cast in the lap, but the decision is from the Lord. Even random occurrences as we consider them, the outcome is determined by the Lord himself. And so we don't trust in these things. Now, we don't want to fall into the opposite trap either and say, well, if God has foreordained everything that comes to pass, then I'll just sit back and wait for him to do it, right? No, God uses means, right? And we see that in this passage. He used means of the Israelites. He used their bow and their sword, but he was the one ultimately who caused it to happen, right? And with the psalmist, we might, tr- we, we might use the bow or the sword, but our trust is not put in those things. Our trust is in the Lord himself. Now, this is a wonderful doctrine that we believe, that we confess, that we teach, that helps us the way, in the way that we live our lives. It helps us to rely on the Lord that we might not fear what men can do to us. But there's an implication of this. Just as God is sovereign, is in control when things are going well, as he leads his people out, So he is also in control when we suffer defeat and disappointment as well. It's the natural implication of this, and that's what the psalmist turns to next. He says in verse 9, You have cast us off and put us to shame. You do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. What's he saying here? He says, you know, the fact that we're being defeated... It doesn't mean that, well, we didn't have enough men or we didn't have enough swords or we didn't fight hard enough. No, he says, God, you are the one who has turned us back. Just as you gave our fathers the victory when they entered the land of Canaan, so when we suffer defeat, it too comes from your hand. It says, you have given us up like sheep intended for food, scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. That is to say, you didn't even get anything out of this, God. You sold us up to the nations, and nothing came from it. And so we recognize that when we suffer, God himself is behind this as well. God does hide his face sometimes from his people. Now, this can happen in an individual's life. It can happen corporately. Here we see as a, as a nation, the Lord hid his face from the nation of Israel. 
cause them to be defeated in battle, and that can happen. And as well in our own lives, we can go through times where God seems to be hiding his face for us, from, from us. He um, does not give us his joy and peace. Things may not be going well. Um, now, I wanted to read here from our Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession of Faith, a few lines that, that reflects on this. It says this, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in many ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence in the preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the Holy Spirit, by some sudden vehement temptation, or by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light." What they're saying there is is that we can all suffer times of of disappointment and discouragement through various things, and sometimes God is trying to teach us something. Sometimes it's as a result of sin in our lives that God is trying to discipline us um, to to remove that sin. Sometimes it's um, uh, for, for other reasons likewise, and sometimes God withdraws the light of his face even from those who fear him, those who are trying to follow him, sometimes those who are doing what's right God will withdraw the light of his face for a time, and we don't always understand why. There's always a distinction, I think, between the way that that God treats the wicked and the way that he treats his own people. He he does bring us through difficulty, but it's always for good. In a sense, we might say that God uh, judges the wicked, but he disciplines his children. He disciplines us for our good. And sometimes, He brings us into trial for no apparent reason, not for any sin even that we've committed. He simply withdraws the light of his face and causes us to walk in darkness and have no light. And this teaches us that we ought not to judge things by their consequences. We can't look at someone's life and say, well, you're having such and such a problem, therefore we can automatically assume that you must have sinned in some way, right? Sometimes it is because of sin, but not always. Think of the man born blind. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, well, who sinned, this man or, or, or his parents? And he says, uh, it wasn't any of those. It was uh, for the glory of God. And this is the case in Psalm 44. It's not for any, in this case, it's not for a national sin that they are under discipline of the Lord. And of course, there are many times that the people of of Israel did sin against the Lord, and he disciplined for it, them for it. But in this case, that's not what's happening. He says here in verse 17, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. He says, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, but you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. He continues on, if we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. The psalmist says, we've been faithful to your covenant, Lord. We've not turned away. He says, yeah, you know, if if we had turned to idols, then that would have been a just thing for God to discipline his people, to draw them back. But he says, we've not done such a thing. We've been faithful to you in all things. We have kept our, our, our hearts pure, our hands clean, and yet you're disciplining us. How do we 
respond to this? What do we make of this? Because this does happen to us as well. The Lord may withdraw the light of his face for a time. Well, verse 22 is where the psalmist ends this section. He says, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. This is what Paul picks up that we read earlier from Romans 8. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, to a group of believers who are experiencing suffering, persecution under the hands of the Romans. And it isn't for anything that they did. It's not because they were unfaithful to the Lord. And yet, they suffer. Of course, this uh, is very uh, parallel to um, much of the persecution we read of in the book of Acts, for example. Um, God's enemies began to violently persecute his church, even though they were faithful to the Lord. And he says, look, why, why is this happening? Well, we don't know exactly why. We don't know what God is doing for us in a sense, and yet, for your sake, we are killed all day long. It's For God's own sake, he has his purposes in our lives. But he points them to something beyond their own suffering. I want to read, go back to this passage in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely Give us all things. Although we are suffering, yet we know that God is for us. He did not spare his own son. He gave him for us. He will give us everything that we need in this life. But it's a reminder as well that the path to glory is the path through suffering. Just as Christ himself was delivered up on the cross for us, it was Through suffering, that he received the approval of his work and the finishing of his work was resurrected and sat at the right hand of God. And so it is through suffering, as Paul says, through many trials, we must obtain the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't explain what God is doing specifically with each instance of suffering and difficulty, and yet... God is the one who is at work, and he has given us the promise of Christ himself. And that's where Paul ends up. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he goes, he quotes from this psalm, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We may suffer many things in this life. We may lose all that we have. And yet, we've been given Christ himself. We are to cling to him, waiting eagerly for the redemption that is to come. And so, as we consider how do we respond to this, Let's look at the last few verses here. The psalmist calls on the Lord. He says, Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. 
Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction, our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. First of all, we should not be afraid to ask questions of God. Um, as we sang earlier from Psalm 13, why do you, where, where are you, God, basically, in, in loose translation? Why do you sleep, O Lord, the psalmist says here? Arise, we can call on God to fulfill his promises to us when we are in suffering. It's also um, good to be reminded that sometimes um, God is, is disciplining us. Sometimes he wants us to repent of certain sins. Sometimes God is simply um, trying to redirect our hearts to teach us, um, all of us, born in, in sin and yet um, forgiven by the grace of Christ, have the remnants of sin in our lives, and the Lord disciplines us for our good. We might know um, how, that we might follow him and to be like him in all ways. And so we're called to be constantly repenting of our sins, to admit that God is right and we want to follow him. And yet even when God disciplines us for other, for other reasons that we don't understand, we're to do what he has given us to do. We're to follow after him. And in all these things, we call on him to defend and protect us. We put our trust entirely in him. I want to finish by reading the last couple verses in Romans 8. It says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's where we put our hope and our trust, no matter what may happen in our lives. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God who led them through difficulty, through trial, through wandering, and yet you gave them promises, promises that they will see fulfilled along with us, their children in the faith. We pray that you would help us to persevere, that by your word and spirit given to us, that you would help us to um, trust in you in all things. We do pray that um, you would help us to cling to Christ above all, and that you would make us um, your um, servants in all things. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.